Our great eternal Holy Father, we are most grateful to you this night for gathering each one of us here, establishing our steps by your perfect wisdom, your mercy, your kindness. And Father, we look very forward to what you have prepared for us. We pray, Lord, that with a holy anticipation fixed upon you, that you will grace us this night as we hear your word proclaimed with the unction, the power of the Holy Spirit to accompany your preached word, that we may be more sanctified tonight, Lord, by the truth of your word, and that we would be made even more into the image of your eternal Son made flesh, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you this evening to take God's word and let's turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. As we will consider this evening what I've entitled a great light scene. A great light scene. Isaiah chapter 9. We will begin reading at verse 1, reading to verse 7. Verses 1 through 7, Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so reads the infallible, 
the inerrant, certain, sure word of the living, eternal God. This evening, we return to our present brief series in Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, where tonight we'll be concluding our study, which is landing us in the most familiar part of this entire portion of Isaiah's prophetic book. It is in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Contextually speaking, the opening words in chapter 9, verse 1 are following what has just preceded it in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. In those closing verses of chapter 8, God's judgment is spelled out for the majority in Judah who refuse to believe God's word and thereby despise it by turning to mediums and necromancers as their guides for the coming disaster. But the consequences for such rebellion and unbelief, Isaiah tells us, or I should say God through Isaiah tells us, will be distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, as they are thrust into thick darkness, both tangibly and spiritually. Isaiah chapter 8, therefore, leaves us in the despair of darkness, which God's judgment will bring on both the northern and southern kingdoms of his covenant people, first by the Assyrians and then second by the 70-year captivity in Babylon. But on the heels of this certain and terrifying judgment God is bringing, Isaiah chapter 9 gives us a redemptive hope. In fact, the darkness of judgment to which Isaiah 8 promises is met in chapter 9 with what Isaiah describes as a great light. Indeed, it is a great light that will be seen, and from it will come forth an eternal salvation. This is because the great light which Isaiah is describing is not a thing but a person who is a special child that will be born. Indeed, the child is a son that will be given, who is, of course, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is this messianic revelation in Isaiah chapter 9, which is the centerpiece of these first seven verses where our attention will be fixed. Three things I want us to see from this passage concerning what the coming of God's eternal Son brings as the Christ of the living God. First, there is the light Christ brings. Second, there is the joy Christ brings. And then third, there is the salvation Christ brings. To begin with, let's notice first the light Christ brings. Isaiah 9 and verse 1 opens up with a conjunction of contrast in comparison to the judgment promised back in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In other words, the gloom of anguish and thick darkness proceeding as consequence of God's judgment will not be permanent. God will honor the land again. Thus Isaiah prophesies, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. When speaking of Zebulun and Naphtali, these lands are referring to the two northern tribes west of the Jordan, which 
when Assyria invaded, they were the first two tribes of Israel to be both devastated and depopulated. This is because they were the most geographically remote lands from Judah and thereby nearest to the foreign countries, which made them subject to greater heathen influences. This is why in verse 2 we read that the people walked in darkness. The fact that they walked in darkness bespeaks really of their whole existence. It was darkness within, darkness without. It was ignorance, distress, misery, and sin. And by the invasion of Assyria, this darkness in Zebulun and Naphtali only intensified. But here's the most amazing thing. Isaiah tells us that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. Clearly when Isaiah penned these words, no such light was shining in Zebulun or Naphtali. In fact, no Jews contemporary to Isaiah's day and time would be so visited by such a light. This is because what Isaiah is speaking, what he is speaking to, would not occur till 750 years in the future. Yet because this is a prophetic word from the Lord himself, spoken through his prophet, Isaiah speaks of this great light with such vividness and certainty, it's as if the light has already dawned. On them, Isaiah declares, light has shone. Note that. Has shown. Not will, but has shown. But this light, as I just said, would not come to Zebulun and Naphtali till 750 years in the future. This is because what Isaiah is prophesying and thus pointing to is the coming of the Messiah. It is concerning the first advent of God's eternal Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, we read the specific fulfillment of this prophetic word in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 and 2. Here's what Matthew tells us. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he referring to Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So for the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, God promised something far greater than political freedom or economic stability following centuries of devastation by foreign powers. Their greatest need had nothing to do with securing their lands for monetary prosperity of any kind. Their greatest problem 
was that they lived in spiritual darkness due to their enslavement of sin no different than any sinners who populate any corner of this world. Therefore, what God promises through his prophet is that a day will come for these people when in the midst of their spiritual darkness, a great light will dawn, dispelling the darkness incurred by their sin and guilt. And this great light is none other than Christ the Lord and the blessings he brings wherever he goes. What is most significant, however, from both an historical and cultural standpoint, is that when Christ took up residence in Galilee and began his messianic work there, it was in the most despised and contemptuous regions in all of Israel. The Galileans were not the sophisticated, educated, prosperous, and ethnically pure Jews of Jerusalem. Instead, they were a motley crew of Jews and Gentiles that would be considered in our vernacular as trailer park trash. And yet, this is where the eternal Son of God the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, would first unveil his great light to great sinners. You think about that. Not to the elite of Jerusalem did Jesus first go, but to the nobodies of Galilee. Commenting on this redemptive fact, E.J. Young wrote the following. In place of the darkness of calamity... The people saw the light of peace and blessedness. In place of the darkness of death, the light of life. In place of the darkness of ignorance, the light of knowledge. In place of the darkness of sin, the light of salvation. Salvation in its widest sense had shined upon these people a complete reversal of their condition had occurred. This is the light Christ brings. But then in the second place, we now notice the joy Christ brings. With the advent of Christ comes redemption, not just for Jews, but Gentiles also. Thus the opening words of verse 3 assert a marvel of redemption where the Lord has multiplied the nation. What was in Isaiah's day a mere remnant of believers will see an enlargement of saints added in time and for eternity, which the Apostle John reports in Revelation 7 and verse 9 is a number which no man can count. You understand that? No man will be able to count that high how many the redeemed will be. At the end of all time, from every nation, John tells us, from all tribes and peoples and languages. But with such an innumerable host of believers in Christ comes a joy inexpressible and full of glory. It is a joy described in two different ways, metaphorically, by Isaiah. On the one hand... He tells us it is like the joy of harvesters at the completion of their harvest. 
On the other hand, it is like the joy of soldiers dividing their spoil following a great victory. The point of these metaphors is how complete, how satisfying, how sufficient the joy is which comes by way of Christ's redeeming work, saving not a few, but many, not just among the Jews, but out of all the nations of the earth. But the overt expression of this joy is to whom it is directed. Isaiah underscores the fact that all the redeemed of Christ will rejoice before you. They will rejoice before you. This is telling us that the highest form of true joy for the people of God is not in what they get from Christ, but it is in Christ himself. We see this again from Revelation 7 and verse 9, where all the redeemed of Christ are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The direction of our praise is in the giver, not his gifts. But while we set our joy in Christ for the glory of who he is, this doesn't mean that we look past or ignore what he has done for us. There is much to be celebrated in the work Christ has accomplished to save his people from their sins. Thus, in verses 4 and 5, reasons are given for the exceeding joy expressed in Christ our Lord. And this is emphasized, interestingly, by the causal particle 4, F-O-R, which opens both of these verses. In verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle torment and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is this teaching? What is it saying? Well, in the first place, God's people rejoice in the freedom Christ gives by his redeeming work where the yoke and staff and rod of our spiritual slavery is shattered once and for all. In fact, this bondage is broken, Isaiah tells us, as on the day of Midian. What is this referring to? Well, this is recalling God's great deliverance he gave to Gideon and his puny band of soldiers from the enormous army of the Midianites as recorded in Judges chapters 6 through 8. The point of this memory in this context is that in the same way all the glory went to God for Gideon's deliverance from the Midianites, so it will be in far greater measure for every sinner liberated by Christ. No one but the Lord our God will get the praise for our freedom from sin's enslavement. In the second place, God's people rejoice in the peace Christ gives by his redeeming work. A peace not between nations, but between God and man. This, in fact, was the centerpiece in the joyful announcement the angels gave to the shepherds of Christ's birth when they exclaimed, glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. Adding layers to this peace, Romans 5 and verse 1 speaks of it directly as peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians 2.14 we're told that Christ himself is our peace. So with the advent of Christ comes a peace that is so thorough and complete, Isaiah compares it to the total abolition of war when all the implements of battle will be burned as fuel for the fire. This then is the joy Christ brings. With the coming of the Messiah, his redemption will reach the nations wherein freedom from sin and peace with God will be among the many reasons God's people will rejoice before the Lord. But lastly, we now notice the salvation Christ brings. The salvation Christ brings. The salvation Christ brings is supernatural. It is out of this world because it is not from this world. It is not what a mere human could do and accomplish and, and accomplish for fallen humanity. This is why the climax of this messianic revelation in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 fixes its greatest attention on the truth of who the Messiah really is. And even further, since verse 6 begins with that causal particle 4, we have in both verses 6 and 7 not only another reason for rejoicing before the Lord, but note this, we have the culminating, decisive, pivotal reason God's people cannot help but burst forth in exhilarating praise to our great eternal God. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Here is the explanation for everything promised in verses 1 through 5. A child is born. A son is given. But is he like any other child? Or son? The answer to this question is the burden of what remains in verses 6 and 7. First of all, we see what he is like by the fact that he is a ruler, a king, a sovereign. All the responsibility, every task, every decision of the government which the Messiah brings shall be upon his shoulder and no other. Understand that. Okay, understand that. He will not have a court of advisors. He will not have a cabinet of secretaries bearing the weight of this rule. No. The full weight of the government shall rest on his shoulders alone. Moreover, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His dominion will be everlasting. Furthermore, 
It is an eternal dominion promised and fulfilled by the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Thus Isaiah tells us that the Messiah will take the throne of David to establish and uphold his kingdom. And in Acts chapter 2, we are told that it was at the resurrection that Christ took that throne. He is on the throne now. This is not, therefore, something that we're waiting for in the distant or near future. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, is reigning, ruling now. Now as king. Now as king. What, 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 what did our Lord say in Matthew 28, verse 18? He said, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's the authority of a king. It is kingly authority that he is referring to there. It's all been given to him. Now in the present, not in the future. It's here, it's now. Important footnote. Second of all, we see what he is like by the names he is given, which are indicative of both his character and the work he is sent to do. And so we read in verse 6, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When we think of the Messiah, when we think of Jesus Christ our Lord, we should think in these terms. In these terms. First, Christ our Lord is the wonderful counselor, or it can be rendered more literally a wonder of a counselor. A wonder of a counselor. The term wonderful comes from a Hebrew word wherein the root of this term is exclusively used of those things that only God can do. Thus the word wonderful is implying deity. This child born, this son given, is none other than God incarnate. But in this immediate context, Christ is called wonderful counselor. Counselor. So then, so then the, the instruction Christ gives, the wisdom he imparts, is that which comes only from God. Indeed, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, as Colossians 2 and verse 3 affirms, because, as Colossians 2 and verse 9 says, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So he is the wonderful counselor. Secondly, Christ our Lord is the mighty God or warrior God. Warrior God. If we had any doubt as to the divine implication of wonderful counselor, this second identification of Christ lays it to rest. But what is the point of this descriptive of our Lord? It is stressing to us, as his people, that the protection he gives us in our weakness 
is not merely better than what we can do. It is incomparable to what we can do. Incomparable. This is because it is the protection of God omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, holy, and just. It is further the protection of God infinite. Thus, there is no limit. There is no boundary. There is no measure where Christ cannot reach us to hold, sustain, provide, and care for us in the most dire of times. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ is our El Gabor, our mighty God, warrior God. He protects us with omnipotent power, immeasurable power. Thirdly, Christ our Lord is called Everlasting Father, or better, Father of Eternity. What's inferred here is that the Messiah will image forth a father-like manner in his kingship as he exercises care and concern in behalf of his people. But our Lord Jesus is not father-like every once in a while, but at all times, indeed for eternity. For eternity. His compassion, his kindness, his gentleness, and how he treats us is unceasing, unchanging, and unlike anything sinful man could give. Fourthly, Christ our Lord is the Prince of Peace. What exactly does this descriptive mean? I will quote Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on it because, frankly, I cannot improve on this. Davis wrote, and follow along with me here, we can easily mislead ourselves here. Isaiah is not speaking of inner peace as we in the psychological West often do. He means a peace in this nasty world. Verses 4 and 5 supply the context. He means peace in a world of oppression, war in combat. And to bring peace in such a world is no namby-pamby affair. Such peace comes by force. One of my professors in grad school used to tell of a Jewish friend of his who had a classic definition of peace that is the Hebrew word shalom. His friend told him, shalom means we win, you lose. He was saying that peace presupposes victory. Indeed, it may be nearly synonymous with it. Do you recall what Gideon said to the men of Penuel when they refused to give Gideon and his men supplies so they could track down the rest of the Midianites? When I return in peace, I will rip down this tower. Did he mean he would return peacefully? 
Clearly not. He meant when I return in victory after crushing the rest of the Midianites. Peace comes in the wake of victory when all opposition is taken out of the way. Prince of peace then does not mean that the prince is peaceful, but that he has power to bring and enforce peace even in a world where many don't care to have it. That is very, very well put. So this then is what the child born, the son given, will be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the character, nature, and way of Christ with his people. But what assurance does God give us that this child will be born, that this son will be given? How can we be so certain that the Messiah will come and be all that God is promising here for our salvation? The closing words of Isaiah 9-7 say it all. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What these concluding words said to that Jewish remnant in the 8th century was this, in essence. Despite how inconceivable and unbelievable this may seem to you, don't doubt it. It is not resting in the hands of fallen man to make this happen. It is all resting in the omnipotent God, the Lord of hosts, whose burning passion, that is his zeal, is to bring this to pass and he will do this. He will do this. In 750 years, following this magnificent prophecy, in a small Jewish backwater town called Bethlehem. God sent one of his angels to declare the unbelievable news to a gathering of shepherds keeping watch over their flock in a nearby field. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then joining this one angel, Luke tells us, a mighty host of God's angelic beings gathered in the skies, giving praise to God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, as bleak and hopeless as things looked in Judah in 732 BC, God gave a promise. He gave a promise that no Assyrian army or Babylonian kingdom could ever upset or overturn. 
He was sending his eternal son into this world as the Christ, the Savior, the ruler and king of all kings, whose saving work will rescue an innumerable host of sinners and whose dominion will reign forever. And what God promised through Isaiah has come to pass. It has come to pass in real time, in real history, 2,000 years ago. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It's about this child who was born, this son who was given. It's about Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If, if we miss this then, we're no different than the pagans around us who celebrate only a season of family gatherings and warm festivities which leave man in his sin without the only true hope there is which is found in God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So may this season be for us as God's people as believers in Christ, a time of renewing our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus who did come, who did come to save his people from their sins and who will come again to usher in a new heaven and a new earth where sin's curse will no longer be found. Amen. Let's pray. Our heavenly, eternal Father, what we have considered what we have contemplated, Lord, what we have meditated upon from your holy scriptures in Isaiah chapter 9 are truly most awesome and marvelous and wonder-working things, Lord. And Father... If any of us here tonight are not left in awe of your greatness and of your glory in the advent of your eternal Son made flesh by what you spoke through your prophet Isaiah in the 8th century, a prophecy that has indeed been fulfilled that has been brought to pass because your zeal accomplished this. Then, Father, forgive us if somehow, in some way, we are in any measure detached from the glory and the weightiness, the weightiness 
of this glorious news that we have encountered all over again afresh concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your eternal Son. Indeed, Father, we pray that at this time especially, at this season, when so much is said and heard concerning the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that what we have heard tonight, may the Holy Spirit seal to our hearts at a greater depth than ever before, that we will meditate upon this, giving greater time to prayer and praise of what you have done, what you have accomplished by the sending of your Son into this world 2,000 years ago in fulfillment of numerous prophecies that you gave through your faithful prophets beforehand, all of which have come to pass for your glory and for the good of all your people those sinners you chose even before the foundation of the world out of Adam's fallen race to which you gave to your son as a gift of love. For all these things, blessed Father, we thank you. We glory in you. We glory in Christ. We glory in the Spirit. In the great and awesome redeeming work of our eternal triune God. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his sake. Amen. Amen. And amen.